Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, we just want to mention that we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck a month there, or if not, leave us a review on iTunes, preferably a good one. I just want to take a moment to wish my illustrious co-host Taylor Atkins a happy birthday. And happy birthday to you, good sir. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, if, I, if memory serves our guest today, you also have a November birthday. Is that correct? Yes, I do. Um, on the 22nd. On the 22nd. So are you within the Scorpio cutoff? Yeah. Or you are okay. I, I am. I am. You know, some people would say that that sort of verges on Sagittarius, but I am a staunch um, <laughs> Scorpio beer (laughs) i'm not i'm not not changing for anyone so yeah we're the the scorpio team three scorpios in a pit but to properly introduce our guest (laughs) returning champion is sabel millar the first guest that we taylor and i had on the show that was not one of our twitter friends so it's nice to sort of have someone back especially that we have a a good rapport with and and friendship with thanks to that episode and you know we just want to say i guess you know first of all we appreciate your your friendship and you know everything you've done to kind of help us out and, and joining Aww. us on the show. Um, but I'll, I'll say a little bit about, I'll kind of fill out a little bit about your your work and so forth here before we get started with the, the heart of the discussion. Isabel's a philosopher and psychoanalytic theorist from London, holding a PhD in philosophy and psychoanalysis from Kingston University, the school of art there. She's the author of the psychoanalysis of artificial intelligence, which we actually did an episode with her on. That's part of the Paul Grave Lacan series. And she also is currently working on Petty Politics on the Government of Sexual Suffering, which will be coming out in 2023 from Bloomsbury. Currently, she's Associate Researcher at Newcastle University in the Department of Philosophy and a Research Fellow and Faculty at the Global Center for Advanced Studies Institute of Psychoanalysis. Again, just a a very hearty, machinic welcome back to you. (laughs) Thank you. It's really Great to be with you. And I feel very privileged that I'm spending time with you on your birthdays. So thank you. And, <laughs> and happy birthday. I hope it's been good so far. It's just started. There's there's plenty of time left. And, you know, I... I Could I like go wrong. Think, Could still go wrong. Hey, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I, like to, I like to think uh, the birthday is half full rather than half empty. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things, you know, when we when we wanted to have you back, we thought, let's do it on the birthday. And, uh, and you know, I think that... I also try to think of celebrating like a birth birth week or even a birth month, you know, because that's just how many are these do we have left? So, and lastly, I think I do remember talking to you about this our first time, but I'm glad that you don't consider yourself a Sagittarius because the ones <laughs> that I've known in my family are ones who I would never like to think of in relation to their sign, but the Sagittarius that I know in my family are 
when I think of them and and all their annoying you know characteristics I'm like you know it's the fucking Sagittarius so I'm glad you're a Scorpio even though I don't really believe in that stuff my wife she's she's the one that's that's always like oh well that's just because she's a Sagittarius (laughs) I'm like I'm like I don't know what that means but I believe it now I believe I believe that it's a good pseudoscience it's 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 one of the good ones I'm keeping it (laughs) it's a lot of fun and you know so today we are going to discuss a work that you've recently and you're still working on but that you've shared with us it's on the preliminary theory preliminary materials for a theory of the bombshell so we're going to talk about the bombshell specifically in the uh the recent i guess very recent right in the past month or two what the it's on netflix now which Mm -hmm. is blonde about marilyn monroe but you could tell us a little bit about either the movie or your interest in it. You were telling us a little bit about it before we started, mm. but, but just maybe tell us what piqued your interest in this and what made you want to write about this movie. Marilyn Monroe is obviously one of those figures that we all grew up with and was um, has just become part of our sort of iconography of womanhood or femininity or bombshellness or whatever. Actually, when I was younger, wasn't particularly interested in, in Marilyn because my sister, who's a couple of years older than me, absolutely loved Marilyn and mm. was obsessed with her. And obviously it was an era before her, you know, life, but it, she was quite sort of unusual because it was the, it was the woman that she had on her walls when her friends would have had like Madonna on her wall. My sister had Marilyn Monroe, but my sister was very feminine mm-hmm. and girly and demure. And I was always a tomboy. I never related to it at all. I didn't, it wasn't somebody who meant anything to me sort of symbolically or or as a sexual role model or anything like that. It was just a sort of, it was more like an affectionate person in the background. So I don't, I didn't have a specific sort of agenda about I'm a staunch Marilyn Monroe fan and I know everything about her life actually because my sister does know everything about her life. So I feel a bit bad because she should probably be here talking about it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but actually I, I think in a sense that's, that may be a good thing when approaching a film like this because this is a film which if you do absolutely adore Marilyn Monroe it's probably even harder to watch because you're so protective over her and invested in her image and for a lot of people that is sort of inseparable from watching a piece of art whether people want to say that film was a piece of art because they might think it's a piece of trash but it's a film so it's still a piece of art (laughs) right um already when I saw people talking about I, I'm not even going to watch this film because it's. I'm outraged by what I think the film is. And a lot of people said that. In fact, my sister even said that. Sorry, Kirst, if you're listening to this, but you won't be listening to this. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I thought, isn't that funny? You don't even want to watch a film because you're afraid that it might ruin your image of this person. So already the film became this mythological thing about right. how you can besmirch somebody's our fantasies about somebody right and because she is a sort of ultimate mythology you know she is the ultimate dream figure obviously I was fascinated in to think about that anyway but then reading there was so many for and against articles of how she's being exploited all over again she mm-hmm. is being her sort of memory is not being honored and again we're seeing the abuse and the the trauma of her life without any of the representations of her it's interesting your your sister would have such a visceral reaction because it's it's about 
I don't want to watch the movie because it's going to hurt my <laughs> preconceptions. My, my fantasy. fantasy is ruined. Yeah. But anyway, I, I, just to reorient you in case you lost the thread, which, which you may not have. But anyway. The idea that, well, first of all, that a film has to represent a holistic, balanced representation of a human being. Anyway, is a slightly sort of flawed approach because when can a film ever do that? And And also a biopic can't do that, let alone a fiction. So... Any film is only ever going to be the the artistic vision that is trying to portray, and mm. I think that if you you have to accept that he has a particular agenda of what he sees as the Marilyn Monroe story, and I d- actually didn't want to read what he said about the film before I wrote anything about it because I I didn't want to be influenced either way about yeah. him because. Also, what he thinks is actually neither here nor there, or what he wanted is neither here nor there. But I find it interesting to read, actually, subsequently, that he very clearly thinks of her as somebody who's... He wanted to make a film about somebody whose trauma shapes their life. I mean, it's not exactly a groundbreaking idea, but it's an idea. It's like, yes, okay, that's fine. That's what he wanted to do. And um, the film is clearly about trauma and abuse and how she was very unhappy and how she suffered. And we get that visceral experience of her suffering undoubtedly for the whole time. And that was also his aim. So I think it's a sort of mis- misfiring to sort of accuse the film of not giving us also her joy and also her talents and also all the nice bits, because that's not what he wanted to do. And then he could have done that. That would have been a different film. And there will be many more films that do that. But also... One of the things, I suppose, that was the kind of nugget of where this particular essay goes, because, of course, I can't really say everything I want to say or that could be said about this film, and I haven't in this particular piece, but the kind of kernel of it was based around this thing that I kept hearing that people were upset about not showing her kind of entrepreneurial business sense, her mm-hmm. powerfulness, her authentic- her agency, her ability yeah. to be in control of her life, as if... Marilyn Monroe's validity as a human being or as an artist should be based or predicated on being a good, mentally stable, robust, powerful woman. And I think that that is a very dangerous road to go down because, first of all, it's sort of like trying to update Marilyn Monroe for 21st century feminism, which why do we have to do that? And secondly, why is being a good, strong person also about being a powerful person? Because Mm -hmm. you can be a very weak, sensitive and injured person and still be powerful in a sense. Like, why is everything about power, I suppose? Why is Marilyn Monroe, why do we have to see her as this great big powerhouse? That's what I suppose I had a problem with because it was sort of trying to make her the girl boss, really. And it's like, but she she wasn't. (laughs) So why does she have to be that for us to love her? So that kind of was the beginning of my problem problem but my the problematization I suppose how I was approaching it and and hence why I kind of saw it nicely like funneling into the the tikkun book of the theory of the young girl which of course is about the idea of the young girl in capitalism and how she functions in a wider context so that was the sort of seed of it yeah I thought it was interesting that you mentioned um you mentioned like that most young girls at the time that like your sister, you were growing up with your sister would have like a Madonna poster. I think that was interesting because right, like obviously part of Madonna's image is inspired directly from Marilyn Monroe's 
which is kind of an interesting effect. And also, you know, even Madonna with like this this polarity of the Madonna and the whore that sort of this double bind almost. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know if that's a, perhaps a little maybe a jumping off point to kind of discuss that or. Also Madonna as the girl boss, right? As like quintessential girl boss. Yeah, I was trying to think, do you guys recall the, there was the one video that Madonna had. I, want, I don't, can't remember if it's Material Girl where she like directly, you know what I mean? She's in the, she's very Monroe-ish and then she's yeah, at she all, does the, the, all the lads. <laughs> yeah, all the lads in the tuxedos, etc. I can't exactly. recall which, which yeah. song it was. Though. Yeah, it's Material Girl. Material Girl, and, yeah. And she does, um, replicates gentlemen prefer blondes the, right. the scene with which is also replicated in the blonde film with Anna de Armas replacing exactly you know the that scene which is a such an iconic and brilliant film actually interestingly because Dominic doesn't think it's Andrew Dominic doesn't think it's a good film <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah I mean that's true because you know Madonna represented the a whole another sort of revolution of female empowerment and you know again madonna is one of those those people that everybody wants to claim and and decide what she means for us um what she means for women and what she means for feminism and which is very separate from madonna as the person etc etc but in the sense that you know the difference between madonna and marilyn monroe there was a lot of people being horrific to madonna because in comparison to Marilyn Monroe, so-called Madonna was just this slaggy woman who was coming along and, you know, being all like slutty and and wanting to have sex with everyone and not being demure and not being like ladylike in the way that Marilyn Monroe was so right. you know, delicate. And that was so funny because it's so ironic that you're comparing these two figures and playing them off against each other in like this sort of like, you know, throwing them to the Christians to the lions sort of thing. It's like, well, they're both supposed to be people who we're supposed to admire for different reasons, but yet we have to like judge which one of them is slaggier than the other, you know, so constantly people being sort of judgmental and moralizing about what form of empowerment is, is okay. And I think that's obviously what part of the problem with this, the way that we're looking at the Marilyn film is trying to come to terms with how we want to, how we want to view her as Mm -hmm. um, a sexual figure and what's, what's okay and what's not okay. And how how it honors her or doesn't honor her, you know. And I think people obviously are very touchy about it because it's a male a male director. Mm-hmm. So if a, if it's a man's talking about women and a woman's body, you know, it, people are, get their teeth on edge, which for obvious reasons. But there's a line. Here's here's just to throw a line in from the movie that I think plays off of exactly what you were talking about, where she's sort of with her what her makeup artist and maybe a hairdresser and some of her some of the the cohort she has around her to help to help her be Marilyn right which constantly throughout the film is you see uh Norma Jean I think is it Norma Jean Norma the person kind of constantly saying that's not I'm not Marilyn that's not me right uh, but anyway they're they're they, they're opening mail and reading this on the one hand you got this fan mail that's deifying her mm. as this sort of you know as this sort of perfect goddess sex symbol whatever but then you have right next to that is vilifying her as and demonizing her as this as a slut and a whore who needs Mm. to who needs to get off the screen and not influence whether it be other young girls or who knows who knows what the reactionary take was exactly but you see that tension in the same breath of and this is sort of what Koopa's talking about, right? It's 
the Madonna and the whore, right? The, these are the two, and they're very old, trite stereotypes. But these are the this is these are the two binds that she has to fall within. Mm-hmm. And I think that perhaps what you're getting out is that having that knee jerk reaction kind of replicates those two boundaries within which we have to frame right. uh, femininity or or whatnot, celebrity, yeah. and that that's actually not a good thing right that's actually kind of not really giving us not really going beneath the surface to something that's deeper and and as you pointed out that kernel of trauma allows us at least a lever to get to something past and beyond that that old framework Mm. this is a sort of it's a a sort of eternal theme that is in feminist debate about how we are supposed to think about sexual liberation, what that means. And it's not a it's not a, a question that there is an answer to for everybody doesn't agree on what is the current way that we're supposed to understand how women relate to their sexuality or how humans relate to their sexuality. And, you know, the sort of idea that, you know, making the argument about trying to represent her as a fully formed person who had lots of dimensions to her and she wasn't just a sex symbol or she wasn't just a glamour girl or she had, or, or she wasn't a traumatized bitch you know yes of course she's she was all of those things as every human being is lots of things at the same right. time but the thing about Marilyn Monroe is that she was the archetypal image and she she exists in our collective memory as this image and her image is bigger than her it has a, a history and legacy that, you know, not that I need to defend Andrew Dominic's bloody vision, but the fact <laughs> is, you know, he wanted to sort of tap into all of our fantasies about her and then kind of rewrite them, I suppose, and, it's, yeah. and sort of say, well, this is what was perhaps going on, or this could have been going. On. And the fact that all of those, that horror existed at the same time as all of that amazing, joyful, wonderful, fantastic talent is something that which should make us chilled you know it should make us think fucking hell we consume all of this stuff and we want it to be a wonderful but actually what is the price of that and what is the cost of that and i suppose it's it, it, you know it's naff to sort of point out that oh you know there's a darker side everybody knew there was a darker side but like i think some of the arguments are a bit weak to say i just heard one just now somebody saying what people need to remember about Marilyn Monroe is that she was a brilliant performer and her acting was you know in different films, she acted differently. So fucking what? That's what all <laughs> actors, you know, if you're a good actor, then yes. you act differently in different films. You have different personas. Everybody knows that. So it's like, I, I think there's a lot of people desperately trying to protect her. It's like, you don't need to protect her. And actually what's interesting is that that's one of the th- quotes I did t- see from Andrew Dominic saying, so many people want to protect her. And if you're desperately trying to protect somebody, it probably means the person you're trying to protect them from is you because <laughs> you're... <laughs> bit too invested in their victimhood yeah so i thought that was quite an you know interesting thing um that he said yeah and i do think that the film tries to show that she was talented right so i mean yeah. like maybe you weren't paying attention but i felt like throughout the the film they were it, it was trying to highlight in various moments of her life the fact that that she had this talent now one of the yeah. interesting things though is one of her first auditions what was so interesting is one of her first auditions after we get the scenes of sort of about the traumatic kernel with 
with the mother who's been institutionalized and let's just say mentally unwell or however you want to put it. And then this absent father, we get the scene of one of her first auditions and she puts on, I mean, obviously the actress, what's her name again? I'm sorry. Ana de Armas. She kills it here. But what's interesting is she's, she kind of went into a trance, if you will, doing mm. this and she snaps out of it and she says something like, you know, I can do it again. I'll be, I'll be any way you want me to be. And you hear the directors or the the producers of the of whatever film kind of saying like she's she's not acting she's she literally is crazy if you will right yeah. and yeah. Uh, and I thought that that was an interesting way to to sort of frame how she may have been seen by these producers who you know who she's just coming on the scene just getting mm -hmm. her chops not yet a discovered if you will star and. Is she acting or is she reliving this traumatic kernel? And I thought that that tension and that being one of the threads of the movie was really compelling and yeah. forces us to kind of think about uh, that that kind of traumatic kernel that you brought up. I agree. And I think that another thing that I find strange is that the idea that he is somehow not not a feminist or whatever, you know, I hate that such a crude way of putting it, but that that he somehow sort of doesn't appreciate all of the nuances about her. But I think it's it's so clear that he's a sort of sympathetic, sympathetic viewer of her because, you know, you you see how he's sh he's showing you like they treat her like shit. And he's not saying, isn't that great? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. you know, she, yeah, right. <laughs> she, she was clearly struggling and no one would treat her Seriously, and and as you just pointed out, this kind of um, oh well, but she's not she's not acting. That's just her, and that really kind of, I think, sums up something very um, fundamental about misogyny, about sexism, about right. women, about women doing anything that can be considered skillful or showing talent. Is that if it has anything to do with the way you look or your sex appeal or your aesthetic dimension, somehow it's less valid or somehow it's impossible to, to tell the difference between whether it's good or whether it's just part of your sort of innate congenital, you know, God-given gift, right? So this, this sort of like the idea that in an actor, them just being themselves is less talented. It's really hard to be yourself you know, as an actor, that's part of what an actor is. It's it's being able to emote and being able to show your emotion. So, you know, the fact that her as a female, a traumatized woman, she couldn't be viewed as talented because she was just doing her trauma. It's like, well, if a man came on and did that, then nobody would have said, oh, but he's just being a traumatized man. So already, <laughs> yeah. I think it's, he's really, it's quite cleverly sort of depicting how women are always sort of undermined because it's like, well, but that's just her or that's just, you know, it can't be a talent. And I think what I found interesting about it is that this sort of like constant undermining of her talents that he, I say keep saying he, but I mean that the <laughs> film kind of does sort of shove in your face and, yeah. and the fact that, you know, it's very graphic and it's sort of, um, you know, all of the horrible depictions of her sexual abuse and rape and which are horrible to watch, but, also, they're kind of understated in the sense that they're not, they're just part of what happens to her. 
Yeah. She just gets up and she goes on. And that's the next thing. That's the next day in life. It's not even thought about, which is how it happens for most people. You know, it's just part of their life. They've got to get up and go on. And right. so I find that sort of quite more powerful in a sense, um, as horrible it is, as it is. Yeah. Than whitewashing it and leaving it out as though it didn't happen. Yeah. It's like is- to say, to say like, Oh, it's it's re-traumatizing or it's exploitative. It's a bit strange, isn't it? Because it's like, well, why is that any more exploitative than any of the other things that we do to recount her life or to think about who she was? Because, you know, yes, maybe those exact things didn't happen to her and it wasn't like that. And why do we have to see her giving a blowjob or why do we have to? That's all true. But, you know, well, actually, there is so much graphic and horrible material that people consume anyway that is not in a sanitized form of of a Hollywood movie, but yet we don't want to see it there because it's our nice Marilyn Monroe. We don't want to see a horrible right. blowjob there. But then people will go and watch a porno and where it's 10 times worse forms of male domination and violence against women. So it, it, there's so many contradictions there. There's a couple of things I wanted to bring up. One, well, maybe I should bring up the first. I w- couldn't help but think of Leotar and this discussion within libidinal economy about how the madam sort of like she, she's able to draw the jouissance. Like she, because I think one of Leotar's big points is we're all sort of prostituting ourselves to capitalism. So like you said, kind of like, what's the difference? Why is this particular form so threatening? Whereas, you know, this is effectively the basic relationship with sort of producing surplus you know value mm-hmm. or jouissance or whatever the case may be secondarily i'm curious to get both of your opinions as to whether i felt like vertigo might be a strong sort of companion film to with this because i think it's dealing or at least with your at least for your piece perhaps mm-hmm. because it's sort of dealing with i see a little similarity and even going back to the the ai book mm-hmm. with regard to you know the way that kim novak also a blonde you know there's also the sort of biographical issue with Hitchcock himself and blondes and his blonde leading ladies and that whole Mm. sort of aspect of it too. But I mean, the film as well, I think is capturing this sort of fetishization of the dead woman, right? And he sort Mm -hmm. of tries to bring her back through Kim Novak's character, like a hermetically sealed, kind of like a Barbie, the sort of masculine view of of femininity. I don't know if that raises any thoughts, but... The perfect blonde bombshell image at the same time as being the perfect blonde, she's also this sort of vulnerable sort of deer, isn't she? She's like this little yeah. doe-eyed creature right. that, unlike a lot of those sort of sort of female femme fatale blonde beauties or right. sort of ice queen beauties like, you know, Kim Novak even or yeah. Grace Kelly. Um, Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, the one. <laughs> yeah, Barbara Stanwyck. She had this particular thing that women really liked you know and that supposedly she didn't just she wasn't just for you know the men's favorite she was like she was very touching for mm-hmm. women and that that was something supposedly unusual about her that gave her this different appeal so this sort of like idea of using of Ma- Marilyn Monroe actually using this appropriating the image of the blonde well, white blonde bombshell as a sort of literal shield against all of her childhood sadness that she literally sort of puts it on and it forms a sort of protective shell for her you know the film is about again i sound like a andy dominic fangirl but (laughs) he (laughs) i'm not by the way um that he 
you said, you know, the film is actually about a child more than anything. It's not really about a woman. And I relate. And he said, I relate to her as some an unloved child. So I think if you think of her as an unloved child who appropriates this image, because essentially the beautiful blonde image is only ever an image because nobody ever really looks like that, really, you know, that sort of exaggerated look. So it can only ever be a facade that she puts on because underneath all the sadness and and vulnerability. So it's hard then at the same time to sort of say that it's an exploitation of an image because an image sort of by definition is infinitely exploitable. That's the point of it. I think that's otherwise why, why would we have them? Why would we create these sorts of beautiful shields, which is, you know, to bring the Lacanian sort of aspect in is that beauty is only ever this shield from the real, from the traumatic impossible that we have, you know, we're so obsessed with beauty because it's somehow this, the creation of some sort of harmony or some sort of calculation of perfection gives a sort of distance between us and something impossible or, or painful or, or horrific, I guess. I'm remembering from Leotard as well, this discussion comes with a, he's looking at, it's Madame Eduarda, which is I think in Klesowski, one of yeah. Klesowski's novels. And just to sort of bring back up what Koopa's saying, there is this sense in which Leotard is showing how she's demonized because as a prostitute, she's also getting enjoyment from the act rather than it being purely a monetary exchange and so sort of problematizing our own relation to to capital and how there is for example in one of the most famous parts of the book this notion that the the english you know industrial worker gets off on mm-hmm. the sort of exploitation and degradation of their bodies yeah and that, and that that's where the that's the troubling aspect so to speak is getting off on our on our exploitation and i think that there is there are these scenes in the movie where it's not just where, where that's not necessarily the accent put on where mm. where you know that that she's getting off on her trauma but she does use some of that for example there is um i forget the movie that she's filming because i don't know her catalog but there's a in one of the scenes she's acting she's got a razor blade to her neck Right. And right before that, she's wringing her hands, which I do think is interesting as a metaphor for what's what some of the commentary about the movie has been. has been a lot of hand wringing based on our own fantasies. But she's she's reliving. She's she's sort of what I loved about the scene, just to think about the psychoanalytic dynamic is she she visits her mother. Her mother doesn't recognize her. And she's her mother's wringing her hands. And, And immediately it cuts to her doing the scene and she's using that or she's unconsciously absorbed that mannerism of hand wringing. And I didn't have a point, I guess there, but, but just saying that this again, kind of, I suppose part of this, it was, I said to you kind of last night, rewatching the film, I, I said, they keep kind of putting the Oedipal relation forward, but I saw it as a lure, right? I saw it as, mm. as not necessarily the dominant reading or that, that we're supposed to just see Oedipus in her, say her, her, her abandonment by her father. She starts to what she calls, I think she calls DiMaggio and um, Arthur Miller, you know, the, her husbands, she calls them daddy, mm. right? There's this putting right in front of us, really hitting us hard with, this whole Oedipalization. I wonder if this 
plays into her being both innocent and a bombshell at the same time. This mm. this this sort of bundle of contradictions, if you will. But but yeah, I, I wonder if you saw some of that. Again, it could be Dominic's view. It could just be could be a lore, as I said. But but this Oedipal way of treating the the yeah. I mean, she famously said that her sort of fantasy was that she would be in a bar one day and her dad would walk in and she would seduce him because obviously she never knew him and her she was desperately wanted to have his love, approval, acknowledgement yeah. like any child would. So, you know, I mean, obviously we, you can sort of take that and be completely, you know, Freudian about it. And, and I mm-hmm. think that the film obviously does play with that theme and that it's sort of inevitable but at the same time you know it's kind of almost it's so obvious that it's like well well yeah of course but in a sense I don't even think I know people are saying oh well they're just showing her as sort of a a girl with daddy issues who wanted a baby and didn't get a baby and it's like well yeah but I I almost think but that's sort of so by the by of course she had daddy issues like every person would and every person Mm. does to a greater or lesser extent but but anyone who grew up without parents would have daddy issues so it's almost like that sort of classic people get that sort of Freudian knee-jerk thing about the horror about being Freudian about something when it's like but we are just Freud like we can't help it we are Freudian like that is is everywhere we can't we can't escape it but yet we don't have to be so literal about it I suppose as, right. as trying to think of it like um she's got this um fancy about wanting to sleep with her dad but I think that you know again it's her as a sort of a wounded child, you know, yeah. is and how that sort of translates into wanting to become a sex symbol and how that what that means for women more broadly is an interesting theme. And I think I don't think he's completely roughshod with it. I think that he treats it quite sensitively, actually. And that um, you know, the question of sexualization or how we think about prostitution or the sex industry you know it's one of those themes that people really don't know how to talk about and they are very conflicted or uh, and sort of unsophisticated about because obviously it's a contested issue still about like what it means to be to prostitute oneself and when does it become being a prostitute when does sexualizing oneself become prostitution and also you know the term prostitute which is why I put it in inverted commas in the text because for, you know, it's a potentially offensive term. But somebody, actually it was my sister, yes, she pointed out to me how interesting it was that she was watching Friends, an old episode of Friends, and ha- how terribly out of date and offensive it was about, for example, um, sex workers, and that they had this scene where Monica had got um, a stripper for Chandler for his birthday, and it was supposed to demonstrate how she was such a modern wife you know she was so cool and just relaxed and then basically he discovers that she's not a stripper she's a prostitute (gasps) oh my god and then he's like oh no like uh, you know this is terrible and she asks him if she can smoke in his room he said oh you might as well I have to burn down the house afterwards anyway so you know she just now suddenly switches from being an innocent stripper which is acceptable in capitalism to being a disgusting dirty horrible you know and that was supposedly acceptable way of talking about, you know, people who work in the sex industry. So it's, that's not very long ago. And I think today that's still, that's a still a theme that is very, you know, it's not even taboo. People are still like extremely offensive about 
about people who work in sex industry. So I think it's one of those themes that is there's so many gray areas about what type of um what form of exploitation, sexual exploitation, or being a bombshell, for example, this idea of what does that mean? You know, what does that mean to be to sell yourself sexually? What does that mean? And what's the difference between being a, a female in inverted commas bombshell who who has the, all the trappings of the traditional um, idea of a sex object and being somebody who sells themselves, but not necessarily in the traditional way of sexual selling oneself. So I think this idea of the bombshell is much more wider than the than the kind of sex symbol in a way. This is really good because there is a moment, obviously you brought up the rape and this is associated at least with her first auditions, her first getting her first gigs. It shows this old, you know, man, producer, whatever that that rapes her. And later when she's with Joe DiMaggio, her husband, I don't know if it's her first husband or second, I'm not sure. But before they marry, he kind of asks her, how did you get started in <laughs> um, in the industry? And and you have this, she has these flashbacks hmm. of that scene. And so for her, she's thinking, for her, you know, obviously unconsciously, but we're as the viewers, we're supposed to see that she got started in the in the movie business because of of sex, as though she thinks of herself as a whore, right? As mm. as, a, as a prostitute. And of course she doesn't answer that, but we're kind of, we have to see that again and, and think that that's, that for her, that's kind of that creation of Marilyn Monroe is kind of tainted in this, in this unconscious way. And I related that to the way that you brilliantly start your essay in describing the bombshell, which Coop has up for us here as a, you write, um, that a theory of the bombshell would attempt to conceptualize the bombshell as that which, in contrast to the entrepreneurial self, which we've already discussed a little bit, as that which embodies the explosive existential potential of Monroe as a fatherless, motherless being who gave birth to itself. And I love that way of phrasing it. And I think that there's a moment when she's when she's talking with Charlie Chaplin Jr. about when he says you know, talking about her lack of a father or her father being absent in her life. And and he's saying, you know what, that's a good thing because we're, we know we're juniors where, you know, it's, what does he say? He says, uh, you didn't have a father, you're free. Like you gave birth to yourself. And I kind of thought that that was a, that was a brilliant way of starting your essay in focusing on that aspect. And I, so maybe we should talk a little bit about that in terms of a sort of how you see that fitting into uh, into this theory of the bombshell. The idea of being fatherless and motherless, but at the same time, you know, the, the sort of looming Oedipal Freudian threads all through the film. But she is a sort of orphan and the kind of this freedom that you have if you don't have a sort of parental figure is obviously a sort of also quite a negative freedom because you you don't know have anything to kick against so she she could do potentially lots of different things but she was always brought back to to looking for her to her father or for being you know traumatized by what had happened to her with her mother supposedly you know this is this is obviously a film we, we don't know exactly what what happened to her but this is obviously why the essay goes in the direction of bringing in Deleuze and Guattari because the, the sort of anti-Oedipal nature of the possibility 
that she could have had as a a human who you know gave birth to this whole you know new person basically and yet she was still sort of like being territorialized all the time right. by other forces that kept bringing her back down to this very sort of oedipalized vision of this sort of phallic object which she ultimately uh so came to because that was what made her so sad you know she was so sad because she couldn't ever quite get out of this having to be this object and all the times she had a little bit of a glimpse of trying to do something else it seems that that was just completely extinguished you know we don't know obviously whether she did kill herself because there are other opinions about whether she was killed but clearly there were lots of dangerous forces at, at work, whether they were other humans or just her own psyche, that what made her a sort of explosive force that actually imploded in on herself. I sort of like the idea of the explosiveness of the bombshell because I was thinking right. about this, you know, in relation to the theory of the young girl, which, as I, I think I said before we started recording that, the reason I, I liked that book is because it's sort of um, it's a se- series of, eminently quotable fragments and every line is a sort of very c- compact sort of co- conceptual idea about this the concept of the young girl which Takoon sort of gives various different uh definitions of but all of them kind of are so redolent and immediately tangible about what the, what they're trying to get at and they're not just sort of theoretical fragments they're bits from mostly from women's magazines that showing up all the kind of strange contradictions of how this young girl is actually the sort of central nugget kernel of capitalism and is sort of the, the sort of key stone product of capitalism in the sense that you know the young girl is constantly the thing that knows her value and is constantly trying to to barter herself on the market she's a you know eminently perishable quantity that is going to run out of date quite soon so that she has to find a buyer and but at the same time, you know, it's it's a very entrepreneurial idea because the young girl is, is a consumer first and foremost because she wants has to constantly make herself desirable and desired and desires other things to buy to make herself. So it's quite a simple idea. But it's once you get it, it's it's very nice to see all the different ways that they kind of identify so many pernicious and awful tropes that have just become part of culture and and like you know you look at every teenage girl around and you think bloody hell like yeah you know and and ourselves you know all all of us are young girls to a certain extent in the way that we are victims of that so you know the young girl doesn't just mean actual young girls but it's about what young girlness is in terms of the victims of capitalism that we all are and so I was thinking about how what would be the end point of the young girl what's the supposed goal of it the goal of the young girl is to be the bombshell but the bombshell is a kind of like self auto-destruct mechanism that capitalism sows in to the process so that you'll all run 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 to come to try and be the bombshell and the one who gets to be the bombshell self-destructs just when you get to being the top then you explode kind of thing so it's it this is sort of impossible machine that grinds you out and you can see why I immediately thought of Deleuze and Guattari and I immediately wanted to kind of think about the sort of more, much more abstract machine of how you construct something like a bombshell and, and how that plays into, as this essay talks about, like the question of faciality and the question of this whole semiotic system that goes into the creation of something like a bombshell in capitalism. This is really great. I do want to 
get to faciality a little bit in a second, but what you got me thinking of was some of the things they say in anti-Oedipus, which you brought up, which is uh, how the unconscious is like constitutively orphan and atheist, right? Without needing a father or mother, or even with your theory of the bombshell, as you're elaborating it right now, I was thinking about, you know, desiring machine work by breaking down that in capitalism, there is this sort of immediate injection of anti-production within production process itself, right? Which we can kind of think of a little bit in analogously to this notion of the, the bombshell as, you know, ex, as explosive after, um, after its creation. But you focused on faciality. And I thought this was interesting, very much so, because, you know, you bring out, and I was thinking about this, and I looked kind of over the, the plateau today before we started talking, but one of the things that that you bring out that I think has become a commonplace is obviously her faciality, one of the traits has become, has taken on a proper name, that, that beauty mark, we have a name for, specifically, Typically, like if you get a, you can get a piercing in that side of your cheek, it's called a Monroe. So it has this, the faciality trait has taken yeah. on the proper name that she constructed. And so, yeah, I guess, I guess that would be the, the next about faciality in the film and obviously in, in how much that went into her becoming this icon. Can you repeat the last sentence? Cause it cut out a couple of words. Oh, I, I was just, I was just thinking about how that, her faciality, her face, and specifically the faciality trait of the of the beauty mark mm. has become so iconic. And mm. perhaps I'm not going to say more than anything else, but definitely was a big part of her becoming this iconic image. I do think it's interesting that the proper name has been attached to that that beauty mark that can be replicated. You can easily replicate it with makeup, or you can get uh, you can get a facial piercing that has a proper name. That to me was was the thing that I kept thinking of is how many uh, I mean I've dated girls that had Monroes and that that's just it's become so common to think about that faciality trait as embodying her essence. So this is something that that got me thinking when you were discussing this question or or this aspect of the film and of our memories of her of our fantasies of her is this this dimension of the face, if you will. Yeah. Even to call it a beauty mark, I think, is sort of belies a certain, you know, not to, I don't want to interrupt. I just wanted to interject that. Just that beauty, the way that you even just phrase it, beauty mark, I think, sort of gets to the Lacanian point, but I'll let Isabel take over. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so interesting, isn't it? Because the the idea of the beauty spot, you know, that was, I mean, I don't know if it was for you guys, but when I was growing up, having a beauty spot was a very covetable thing. Cindy Crawford, for example. Yeah. 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 Cindy Crawford had it and it was, you know, this thing that strangely, you know, in, in other epochs that would have been a horrible, ugly mark. Right. That, right. That would have, you know, in medieval times, you, you know, would have been a, a horrible witch or a, a then, blemish. Yeah, a blemish, yeah. but but or, you know, and obviously it, it's just gone back and forth in throughout history of when it's been fashionable for people to have them on their faces when it hasn't been fashionable. But it's interesting that the Monroe is a piercing because a piercing is a sort of a perm- <laughs> permeating the flesh, you know. So it's, it's a different, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's different, but also quite very symbolic, isn't it? That now the beauty spot actually goes into your, penetrates your body as yep. opposed to being a, a protuberance on your body. So that's quite interesting. But I was just thinking about her face and, you know, how she is, she has this, this archetypal beauty and, you know, she she's sort of obviously 
undeniably very beautiful. And she did have supposedly a couple of sort of um, cosmetic procedures, but I suppose most of her face was sort of constructed with makeup and camera mm-hmm. and lights. But, you know, she was essentially a very pretty, beautiful girl. But the effect of her, of that look, obviously has become the iconic face. And, you know, obviously I was thinking about how sort of the, your face is, you know, you can't choose your face and you're, you mm-hmm. have to, as Deleuze and Guattari say, you, you slide into it. You, you know, there's mm-hmm. not really anything you can do about it. You can, you know, play with it and, and, and create it up to a certain point but what the face you're born into will determine so many things about you and will and sort of already enter into this whole symbolic dimension that you don't have any control over so obviously taking the whole lacanian toolbox and applying it to not just the sort of semiotics of language but the the visual semiotics which is of course the sort of leotardian gesture to think about the the whole dimension of the visual in terms of the imaginary as opposed to just linguistic things and so we think mm-hmm. about the face as a sort of text as well and and her face as a text that was she was born into she in a sense doesn't really have any choice because she is this being that comes about in this particular time in history and occupies this body and yes she had she did create we did create her face the society created her or her or the industry created it, but essentially she didn't really have a choice about that. But, you know, the whole question of faciality, this idea of, you know, the white wall and the black the black hole dynamic that Deleuze and Guattari talk about as being the two semiotic systems that create faciality sort of operate very clearly in the face of a very beautiful woman who is kind of like at the mercy of these different semiotic systems. And underneath, all they can do is try and play with the sort of bits of agency that they have in order to take control over this monstrous thing and and, and they the sort of monstrousness of the face of of how it kind of like dominates everything it's quite interesting and so I thought it was quite nice to think of her as a sort of like Jesus figure as well because you know right the face of Jesus for Deleuze and Guattari is the zero point of faciality hence the year zero title of the mm-hmm. chapter because you know for them Jesus is the moment where fe- the sort of abstract machine of faciality begins and inaugurates the whole system of white capitalist patriarchal domination, Christian, et cetera, et cetera. And a sort of like analogous idea of, of Marilyn being this kind of like um, sacrificial face that represents so much, you know, represents so much about femininity, about whiteness, about Americanness, about, you know, what it means to be a child versus a woman and, you know, growing up, how you make that distinction between a vulnerability and sexual availability. So, you know, she mm-hmm. has all of these semiotic systems operating all the time on her face. And once you start thinking about her like this, it becomes, you know, you sort of think, God, you know, there's this human being behind that that has to work work through all this stuff. And so I, I suppose I just found it interesting to think about this beauty spot as like a kind of uh, a black hole, you know, that she basically gets sucked into. It's, you know, her mm-hmm. beauty is so overwhelming for her that it sort of consumes her and sort of pulls her back into it as a vacuum. Yeah. So I was going to kind of connect because you bring up in the essay a little bit about Kim Kardashian. And since we're mm. on the topic of faciality, I thought it was rather interesting that she's sort of playing with this legacy. But what I think is really interesting is that. And I don't know if you were intending this specifically or not, or if you've seen this phenomenon of Kim has been wearing the masks, like the baklava masks, a lot lately. 
for whatever reason. Have you seen this? Oh, I you... don't know about that. Sorry. Oh, interesting. Let me uh, let me pull up an example. It seems like it's been over the last maybe year to oh, six the balaclava. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think there's just kind of interesting relative to, you know, there's a lot of this is wrapped up with Maryland because, you know, yeah. obviously Kim wore the dress, the Maryland's mm. dress to the Met Ball was the, last, oh, yeah. the most recent Met Ball. So there's that aspect. Obviously, she's been that sort of like figure of our sort of contemporary. I don't know if you could say Marilyn Monroe, but whatever. She's like the sort of idealist, the idea of the bombshell in our contemporary mm. era down to, I think, even this is a side point, but just to go back to kind of. A little bit of a discussion of the young girl I was just thinking about. I had heard that in terms of linguistics, young girls are the most, that's the group that sort of drives a lot of the way that speech actually like affect, like your actual affect. Mm. So the proliferation of something like vocal fry, for example, which is interesting because I've noticed this too. Like, you know, we spoke to Graham Harmon. Graham Harmon has like this Midwestern affect that i don't even think this accent ex- i never run into this accent people our age have vocal fry like it's it's undeniable you know you can always kind of tell i can always tell when i'm editing and there's someone who has a unique speech affect it sort of stands out so mm. that's a lot to parse but i just thought let me even pull up a picture of kim because this might be something interesting to discuss relative to you know faciality etc when i was growing up just to, as coop types this in to speak about the the young girl's mode of speech, mode of expression as being one of the dominant motivating forces for linguistic change is uh because I va- thought you, sorry, go on, sorry. I, no, but, say, but I was like balaclava or baklava? Because she said Yeah, he said he said ba- he said baklava, but I right. was thinking of, I was thinking about the when I was growing up, it was the, the valley girl yeah. mode of speech that was yeah, that, that, like, oh yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Which another bombshell Paris Hilton kind of helped to make that even though it was popular before her she kept it alive longer than maybe it should have it's really interesting isn't it because um oh that's sorry there's too many exciting things that i want to respond to that you just <laughs> right. said to me and showed me um, one at a time it's a, it's all good <laughs> well there first of all the the kind of um thing about the kim kardashianization you know she is now this sort of uh she is a sort of ar- the archetype but what she she's kind of like an algorithm isn't she and and i think that what's interesting about the face now because we're more able to to sort of everyday people are able to well, I say everyday people but more than you know not just film stars can do stuff to their face and young girls get fillers and change their faces essentially but it's such a phenomenon on Instagram that people look the same and you know right. there, there is a very recognizable face that you know that has done the things that you're supposed to do to your face to look a certain way and obviously Kim Kardashian was one of the first people that started that and all of her sisters and stuff but I thought it was quite interesting to think about how the sort of standardization of the face it has a sort of opposite effect of beauty in a sense because the more you try and approach the perfect face the more you sort of iron out any sort of contingency or idiosyncrasy that could be beautiful so right. actually Kim Kardashian then putting a whole balaclava over her face is perfect because there's no imperfection. You, she's become a beauty spot. She's just a black beauty spot. Yeah. You know, that's what she oh, is. So I think that's, that's a quite nice sort of corollary to the Marilyn Monroe's perfect contingent drop on her face. And if you try and take it completely to the end, you can't get there. You're, you're never going to find it. And you see that so often with, with people who've done so much to their faces that it just tips over just slightly right, into yeah. something that's monstrous or that's yeah, like, oh. like uncanny. It really is uncanny yeah. at, at a certain level. It just gets becomes like repulsive almost. 
Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't even need to be like the sort of Bride of Frankenstein things right. where people do <laughs> massive lips and and you sort of think, oh, and you know, people are like, oh, isn't it sad that they did that? But then you also see like very beautiful pop stars and film stars and stuff, and they've done their lips a little bit or their cheeks, mm-hmm, and then they go they, mm-hmm. they go a little bit too far, a little bit too far, until the point where you look at them and you go, you used to be beautiful, and now you're not beautiful because you are too beautiful or you're too perfect or you're right, your yeah. teeth you're inhuman like, yeah yeah it's not there's something lost and it, they lose their actual beauty and um and that's a sort of very sad kind of development and and you know i'm not conservative or reactionary about it at all because i think it's really good that we should be able to do what we like to our bodies and make ourselves happy in whatever way that we want right to. um i believe that completely that we should be able to to do that but you know these things are nuanced. These things are complicated. And and, yeah. and with that also comes this other problem about how do you deal with, you know, the perennial question of philosophy, contingency and necessity? At what point does, you know, curation and contrivance take away randomness, spontaneity, naturalness? You know, those kind of questions are always in play. And there's no simple answer. There is no, you know, I don't have an answer. I mean, I'm not saying women should not do anything for themselves to make themselves look different. Absolutely not. But I just, it's also very alarming that so many people grow up feeling that they're not good enough, they're not beautiful enough, not, and they do everything that they can to change it, to change themselves so that they can be okay or so that they're not, they're not hideous to people. And so the whole question of dysmorphia is um, very interesting. I don't think that Marilyn Monroe right. actually ever had dysmorphia. I don't know. I'm sure someone can correct me, but I don't think one of the things that she suffered from was a lack of confidence, but maybe she did. I don't know. Are you familiar with the Giga Chad? Do you know what I'm referring to when I say Giga Chad? Giga it's Chad. Little, so it's like the meme. I'll, I'll pull it up. It's a meme. I mean, the, the I think this is... is an interesting corollary to like this kind of faciality, this kind of inhuman, like this mm. sort of aspect of like, well, perfection and scare quotes. I was just thinking about this in terms of faciality because it's almost like this ridiculous, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah, him, yeah, yeah, yeah that's Giga Chad, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I went out of him actually. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, like oh god, it's awful. This kind of approaches like that same sort of inhuman um, mm. limit, right? That kind of limit of in the uncanny valley sense. And I was also thinking the fact that you quote one of the quotes that you bring out from Dulles and Guattari is uh, it would be an error to proceed as if the face only became inhuman beyond a certain threshold, close-up, extreme magnification, recondite expression, etc. The inhuman and human beings, that is what the face is from the start. It is by mm. nature a close-up. So it's mm. interesting okay. just that for them, the face is inhuman from the start, which mm. has to do with something per- perhaps beyond the scope of, of discussion today, right? You brought up the, it's the fact of the interface between the the semiotic system of signifiance and the semiotic system of subjectification and how the face literally sort of becomes a, becomes this absolute deterritorialization, which raises it outside of the organism. That's just like in the nutshell, but the point being there's this interesting part where by continually modifying and modulating the face, what's uncanny about it is that it forces us back into recognizing and realizing that the face is inhuman from the right, start. Yeah. Maybe that's part of it, that that's the uncanniness that it-, it Right, it, yeah. It, I'm confr- us- confronted with your own sort of like terror at your own sort of in- inhuman, inhumanity. Interest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like basically it shows you the, the lie of the idea of any naturalness in the first place as if 
our faces were just these natural things and but they're not we slide into them they're created they're constructed and they're sort of synthetic and you know that's sort of the sort of lacanian way of thinking about the creation of discursive systems as being the you know the only thing that actually makes us human is this sort of unnatural system of language that we are born into and and actually there's something inherently inhuman about that because it's a machine that that sort of imposes itself on us right. and mm-hmm. and you know discourse operates on the face just as much as on anything else and the face is really the part of the body that is overcoded by all of the discursive systems that basically stand in for every form of semiotic system so that you can't you know once you see a face in something you think that's the the funny thing that they're saying isn't it it's like it's not that you're humanizing it's actually it becomes unnatural it becomes strange so like it becomes something Mm -hmm. you know separate from from our actual being and uh yeah so that you know it's sort of like the man, well, yeah, the man and the moon or the sun. The well, sun I was thinking, did you see the other day the smile on the sun's face? I'm just trying. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. Something wow. brilliant though that I think what I Taylor, you caught this about. I love this idea of the face as a user interface because that really goes to Isabel, you're gesturing towards this idea of like, yeah, this sort of user interface for the mm. social. And in that way, it's already structured and kind of the medium is the message almost to draw in sort of a McLuhan point there about the face is this like the face is the medium, right? Or mm. and the message, you know, in a certain sense. What they say, and I think you quoted this too, or part of this, which is about how some certain semiotic systems need a face. Guattari will even talk about capitalism, really sort of the faces that are dressed up for capitalism and how it's part of this exclusive disjunction of the face, which is male, female, you know, attractive, ugly, threatening, which is why they define sort of racism as starting from the sort of white Eurocentric Jesus face, the clown face, and then propagating outwards these waves of sameness that Mm -hmm. sort of it's within those concentric ripples that the further out you are, the more threatening potentially you could be to the status quo, whatever. So that's kind of how I think of the interface in the face. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this, Isabel? Because you you brought out some of this brilliantly in your essay. This is interesting too, just real quick to think about like mm. uh, the T-800 in the Terminator film, right? Because it's like this, the face is skin, you know what I mean? It's this thin layer of this veneer, this user interface is required mm. to participate in the social and like interact without causing this terror that would ensue if a sort of the inhuman really burst out yeah it's so weird isn't it because it's such a sort of tiny delicate threshold of what can go wrong or right in a face and you know we're all like descended from other creatures that weren't human and we we developed features in the way that we did but like when you sort of try and you, you see similarities between human faces and, and different animal faces and and some of those animal faces can be cute or you can find it you can find it threatening or or, mm-hmm. or welcoming or smiley or whatever but then if you think about it it's like there has to be some thing that started our ideas of what right. is the right sort of face and how we should interpret a face in the right way because you know it, it's not random and which is why it's very powerful I think the way that DNG used the face of Jesus Christ as this sort of like zero point of where everything has to be judged in relation to. It's not that 
there's different types of faces and you know, or for example racism exists as a in-group out-group but rather the degrees of divergence from an archetype that right. is acceptable and that's also interesting because that comes up a little bit in uh Roland Barthes of, mm-hmm. of the face of Garbo, of the, the idea of the sort of platonic ideal of a face, which is not even a particularly female face for him. It's a face that kind of has this platonic form of, sort of graceful divinity. You know, it's very sort of reminiscent of the, the Jesus, the sort of white Jesus. And actually also not just a kind of idea of whiteness or even masculinity, but something also interesting is the idea of a face being able to convey benevolence or kind of sacrifice. So the idea of the face of Jesus, when you think of the face of Jesus, we think of a face in suffering, you know, usually Jesus on the cross or Jesus looking at something with a sort of sad repose. So that face of the sort of the unenjoying face, but at the same time, a deeply ecstatic face in a way. And then if you think of the face of Monroe, as a female face you know she she is kind of has that sort of like eyes to the ceiling look always like jesus but in a sort of sexual way that <laughs> she's experiencing something divine and you know so the kind of idea of feminine jouissance there is is sort of quite clear but but the kind of whole signifying regime of divinity in a face i think is really interesting as well because how do you calculate that like what's the algorithm for that <laughs> yeah. i like too that you bring up the idea of the archetype here, because it seems like Marilyn Monroe, just through like his to historicize a little bit, she falls within this like perfect moment where the mass media and film and all of that, and like these digital and I guess analog technology rather at the time were sort of bursting on the scene. So in a sense, she is like this, there's like another, there's sort of a year zero effect there relative to like the way that images are able to be proliferate and the way that the 50s and so forth sort of function as this golden age or mm. idea of like America and prosperity and like everything was so great and and wholesome and and cheerful, et cetera. But like underneath that facade, that little thin layer, you know, there's something else going on. There's something inhuman about it. She's the year zero, as you say, of of the beginning <laughs> of like of like culture ma- industry. modernity. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. of like how to reproduce an image. And so her her face as an image, which is another reason why right. I think the film is sort of cleverer than people give it credit for, I guess, is that, you know, it really is a Baudrillardian film. It's it's taking her image and showing this, the way that she, you know, she's just a simulacrum of this right. in a sort of in proliferation of images. And we all have this sort of database of her image, you know, in our right. memory banks. And we kind of like, sort of feed off it all the time but she was the beginning of that so to kind of think that she's anything else than this sort of infinite repetition of images you know the warhol of yes like that's what she she became so to sort of like think of her as anything else than a sort of ultimate expression of the baudrillardian image would be strange i guess you could see her as this there's a whole procession of eras of simulacra first you have you know you have norma then she becomes Marilyn on the screen. Then her image gets Warhol does his famous painting with her. Obviously, we already discussed Madonna and now we're mm. at Kim Kardashian. So you can mm. see like it's all sort of this continuous spiral of of whatever. Yeah. The probe head towards yeah. the probe ah, head. There we go. And now, thank you, because you, you I'll have to put that into the essay. The probe head is the black uh, balaclava outfit. That's the probate, isn't it? <laughs> <That's> like... <laughs> right, because it is about as they as they suggest, it's about dismantling the face. Yeah. 
rather than reinforcing it, if faciality, the abstract machine of faciality, as it's been incepted with, you know, with the Eurocentric Jesus, the white face of Jesus, and if that is one of the anchoring points, one of the quilting points, if you will, I don't know if I'm even using that correctly, of of this racializing exclusive disjunctions that they work through, then mm. dismantling the face, there's something liberating in that. I know that the, that plateau doesn't necessarily resolve how necessarily to do that, but they they seem to give some hints of what could possibly be sort of extrapolated from it. And so, yeah, I, I do think that that's a good point about the balaclava as being as maybe materializing the black hole as you just kind of reiterate something that you said of subjectification. So, you know, that's rather than sort of what we're still with by fetishizing the face or by deifying it or reifying it or, or fantasizing it and becoming sort of lost in it. The losing what you're kind of saying, like you got to push that system further because it is, it is not necessarily the face is a horror story, right? For them. So if that's true, then we shouldn't, be satisfied with it what do you think they envisage as like the probe head what do you think honestly i I think that this is where their semiotic systems of for example you know you've got the signifier and its despotism but you've also got the passional line which which may be post signifying but at the same time has its own follies and Mm -hmm. so if, if we're sort of caught in between you know the despotic signifier on the one hand and the and the passional subjectification on the other hand i'm wondering with the probe head i don't know what it would look like but i think that for guattari it does seem like this utopian or dystopian future wherein we see more and more these asignifying elements coming into play i mean this is part of sort of what you were discussing in um in your book on on AI, where it's really an interesting thing that we would want to sort of embody AI in in a human replicating form with a face or whatnot. So I do think that that perhaps Probehead thinks of generalized AI in, in this future sense as not necessarily being tethered back to all the dimensions of the human, including the face. Mm-hmm. Now, what it looks like, I think, could potentially be, you know, indefinitely theorized. But I don't know if you if you feel like some of that is what they're they're getting into, because obviously, mm-hmm. so far as we're sort of on this organic stratum of the human, I think we're going to have faces, but they don't seem to necessarily say that it's uh, they don't seem to necessarily say that it's natural or organic or particularly biological. That's the fascinating thing for me, right? Uh, is they kind of ask, are we, is it basically only the the polyvocality of the head and the primitive territorialities and then the probe head on the other side and we're sort of locked in the middle or are these, are there alternatives? And I'm not exactly sure that they know how to answer that question. Mm. So It's just so interesting because you always want to like think, what could they mean? <laughs> and then yeah. you're like, I don't think we can know what they mean because I don't think what they are implying is ever something that is, we have the sort of tools yet to kind of understand what that could imply. And inevitably what often happens with Deleuze and Guattari is that we kind of fold it back into things that we can kind of understand, can kind of imaginarize, can kind of get a visual understanding of and, you know, 
put it back into a sort of human <laughs> form of, of trying to understand the implications. That's why I suppose they're so fascinating as well, because it's like, it's always falls back into territorialized versions of them. You know, not that we'd get into speaking about Nick Land, but I, I think it's an interesting, for example, the ideas of how, for example, anti-racist discourses or feminist discourses can so easily twist back into things that are so comfortable for capitalism. And, you know, for example, the Kim Kardashian as a Armenian woman who's made loads of money and rep- what she represents for multiculturalism or what she represents for feminism, what she represents for women with different sized bodies, you know, supposedly she's always been like appropriated by different people to say that she's a role model for this or a role model for that. Um, but then also she's held up as like the ultimate kind of capitalist swine who's just making all young girls, you know, have all the wrong ideas about what being a woman is, etc. She will never be able to win whatever. But it's quite funny that like she has to be that whole like idea of her becoming a sort of balaclava, the kind of uh, algorithmic nature of her particular Eurasian features, you know, because she kind of has this sort of like undefinable type of face that could be lots of different races and that sort of effect of the sort of Instagram face which melds so many ethnic features into one sort of replicable acceptable version of not quite white not quite black not quite Middle Eastern not quite you know all of these things that then become a sort of very marketizable product and you know it has the effect of both very good things because Mm -hmm getting rid of whiteness as a an ideal is very good but of course then you know you have this medium which also becomes a totalitarian form of 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 perfection of like you have to be just this spot in the middle that is you know not too black not too white not too um chinese so of course that in itself becomes its own form of tyranny and um then you just have to cover the whole thing over and just become a just a nothing it's quite Deleuzean in a sense because it's mm-hmm. like co- constantly like bringing it back down to to a zero level of like, well, what can you do to not be to not terrorize? What can you do to to not oppress? It's very hard because it will always come back. It will always come back right. through the. I think it's interesting too how you know just biographically speaking how Kim you know the sex tape. There's been rumors that this was like a once the sex tape was out there, right? The mother, I forget what is her name. Um, oh, I forget. Yeah. Her. But they kind of (laughs) it's Chris, Chris, Chris Kardashian or whatever. So they they monetized basically the video of her having sex with Ray J or whatever, and that's kind of what ultimately led to Kim's popularity in a certain Mm. way. Mm. I mean, even Kanye like sort of bragged about this. You know, my my wife got famous from a sex tape, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and I, I do think that two things I was thinking of. One was whether or not Marilyn Monroe would be an Instagram model today, would that be the more of a venue for the girl boss in her rather than acting? But that's just kind of an offhand comment. But the other part, just to kind of stick with what you were saying about the face, one of the things that we know what's interesting, not just in what I said about certain systems require face for their functioning and how Guattari has pointed out capitalism can use the exclusive disjunctions to sort of categorize and and sort of 
distinguish immediately like on our faces, whether we're male or female, heterosexual, homosexual, blah, blah, blah. But we do know there's also all kinds of facial recognition technology Mm -hmm. and how oppressive that can be. And so what's interesting with the sort of the fact that masks have been pretty much widespread and normalized due to the pandemic, there are certain aspects of that that can foil these systems of control and Mm -hmm. recognition. So maybe that's a smaller part of obviously the balaclava takes it even further, but, but COVID masks do help to try to scramble some of the aspects of the face. And maybe that's part of uh, the reasons why so much of the, of the reaction, the backlash is to mask is like, I can't hear what you're fucking saying because you got the mask on. And Mm. it gets to their very point that a voice already implies a face. So covering face is actually disrupting or potentially impeding that system of of the signifier. Mm -hmm. And that that might be part of our reactionary tendency to want to anchor back into the stratum of of signifiance. And Mm -hmm. uh, I guess that my last point would just be I don't know if I have the last point. I probably had a <laughs> probably had five points, but you know they're all scrambled together. But anyway, that's just part of what I'm what I'm kind of thinking of when you when because I'm still thinking about the probe head. But mm. you know that's part of it is uh, I said to Coop a long time ago. I said you think libertarians would love masks because of this ability to to become imperceptible or more imperceptible. Right. It is interesting though that how I mean the what is it balaclava rather than baklava? <laughs> yeah. Baklava. <laughs> Dessert and yes. <laughs> so this has actually become like this is like a high end fashion trend is mm. designer brands like Balenciaga, etc. Mm-hmm. This is like a ongoing trend for the last couple of years. Yeah. And I think obviously it probably is inspired partially through the COVID mask, but I mean yeah. perhaps even the like the protests, like the George Floyd protests as mm-hmm. well. I think perhaps like these are the sort of the ground, if you will, that sort of enable this thing to happen. But you can kind of see how capitalism even creates this sort of axiomatic here to like reincorporate this sort of imperceptibility yeah. back into its own monstrous machinery. Yeah, it's very clever, isn't it? Because also, you know, we are constantly having our every bit of data about us extracted and analyzed mm-hmm. and, and used, but yet. When we get a chance to avoid it, if we don't take it, you know, our most precious commodity really is privacy, isn't it? It's, it's only really rich people that get to be private now online mm-hmm. or live um, out of the loop. And, you know, people who work in Silicon Valley or who are big tech people don't have anything to do with social media, mostly in their personal lives, because they know how stupid it is to be letting yourself um, be under that kind of scrutiny. They don't let their children have mobile phones. They don't, you know, everything's off grid, isn't it, for those people? But yet they make billions out of um, uh, <laughs> making other people be under the under the gaze of it. But so it's very interesting that people are so we're so quick to give ourselves over to it. We prostitute ourselves all the time and and sell our images, sell our words, sell our likenesses to everybody. And and it's it's kind of um, very hard not to, isn't it? We we don't really have much of a choice because we are forced to be entrepreneurs of ourselves all the time, just to to be make a living. Really, mm. um, it's hard to escape. So you kind of like want to be private, but you actually can't. Right, so then yeah. you, you might as well just put it all out there. We don't necessarily struggle with it, but I think it's part of 
kind of like we discussed the other day, we were discussing this book, Algorithmic Desire, about social media mm-hmm. and about how you have to sort of like sell yourself as a product and a brand and et cetera. And like us, you know, posting our images on Facebook or Twitter, et cetera, there's something to this. Like there's a to gain any sort of audience, one has to kind of participate in this system. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't get anything. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. It's sort of impossible to opt out. They've made it so that you, the only people who can opt out are the people who are in control of those systems. Exactly. Even having a smartphone, you know, it's almost like that's sort of a requirement to participate, at least, you know, within the sort of the West, the more yeah. developed economies, right? Absolutely. Like you, you, need, you can't get, you know, you need a phone to get any kind of job or, you know, to do yeah. even like Lyft, Uber, like these very simple menial jobs require this, you know, thousand yeah. dollar investment for a, for a smartphone. But, but- it's a very recent thing. I mean, I think that that is just even between me and my older brothers who are 10 plus years older because I've got three. So they're, you know, in a different generation. And I remember them saying to me a few years ago of like, oh, you know, are you sure about, you know, because you, you do put a lot of stuff online and, you know, <laughs> and I, I was like, but do you not understand if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be able to have a career. Like I literally have no choice. That is the only way that I get the things that I get. It's through my own self-promotion. And the idea that to them was like, oh no, but it has to be a separate thing because that's your private life. And I was like, no, there's no se- there's not there's no difference. I can't differentiate it because I have to. That's that is like we live in this world where if we want to make a living, <laughs> we have to give ourselves over completely. And there is no difference. But but for them, I think there was a difference. You could have a job that was separate from, you know, you could earn a living. You know, nowadays, like there are people who have normal jobs and then there's everybody else. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was quite strange. I was also thinking about, you know, that in um, on Instagram, there's so many images of Marilyn that have been marked up with like, what's it called? You know, Photoshop. She's been Photoshopped to make her oh. supposedly more beautiful. So, I don't know, it's just so mad because it's like, how could you make her even more beautiful? But apparently there are things that can be done to her face to make her better and people do it. And I just find it, that's quite interesting, isn't it? The idea that that's still. I would imagine there's some type of symmetry or like algorithmic symmetry that you can apply that would sort of construct this ideal angular face or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. It's mad. It makes sense that it would be manipulated and you know, that, that, that would become its own sort of form of uh, satisfaction and, and sort of, if, as you said, the Instagram filter is omnipresent and can be applied to any image or any photo, these filters obviously could be applied to to other faces. And I wonder if that filtering, whether or not it exacerbates and meshes us even deeper back into the faciality machine, or if that could be pushed far enough to eradicate or to dismantle the face as they suggest. I wonder if the filter could be sort of tweaked and instead of perfecting the face which i think is have you seen these bad smoothing like that smoothing on do you know what i'm talking about no with instagram <clears throat> smoothing. yeah let me show you an example but that that would be my my suggestion too is perhaps the filter can be sort of uh, used against itself not just to distort or to refine but to dismantle the face which yeah. is which is their call they're mm. called to dem- dismantle the face and i yeah. And I don't know if that's in our immediate future. Well, the sort of surreal, the surreal idea of the face that they have at the end, I, I put it in the text, but I really like that um, quote, if human beings have a destiny, it's rather to escape the face 
to dismantle the face and facializations to become imperceptible, to become clandestine, freckles dashing towards the horizon, hair carried off by the wind, eyes you traverse instead of seeing yourself in, or gazing into those glum face-to-face encounters between signifying subjectivities. I thought that was a really nice quote, like <laughs> the, it's sort of like the sort of Dali face of like all different bits of right. running, running away. I thought that was a really nice. I think it's the image of that. This is one that Guattari talks about. And I think it's in Anti-Oedipus. I think it's in Machine Gun Conscious. And I think it's mm. in A Thousand Plateaus where they talk about in Proust, there's this encounter with, I believe, Albertine. And she kind of almost explodes into a cosmos, into this cosmic kind of like stardust. Her face kind of just like fireworks going off mm. or something like this. Um and I think one of the interesting things that Guattari, and this might be really Guattari's thing more than Deleuze, mm. but I'm, I'm not going to try to distinguish. But, you know, he, as an analyst, I think, I think of, for example, Freud, Freud's way of trying to situate the face in the analyst and Alizand relationship. You know, for him, he took it as a rule that you don't insert, at the, the face of the analyst screws up the free association of ideas. That's why you seat you seat yourself behind the patient, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's still in practice or if even Lacan practiced that. But I know for Freud, that was an axiom that that the analyst, the face of the analyst, is going to impose itself, whether as an object of fascination for the analyst or just in any reaction they give, it's going to fuck up that free association. Well, I mean, Freudians still practice that, but Lacanians don't, and I think the Lacanians would say that you have to go wholesale through the transference and with everything that entails with all the kind of facial imaginarization. Gotcha. That, that is part of the getting through that transference stage of the analysis. And you obviously would have to traverse the stage where you're in that sort of imaginary realm and mm-hmm. um, go onto the symbolic plane so that you are not trapped in the kind of imaginary sort of embrace of yes. this transfer relationship, which obviously works both for the analyst and the analyst and, and it's, it's a process that has to be gone through. So I suppose the difference between the Freudian and the Lacanian here would be that the Lacanian says, well, you can't avoid the face. The face is going to be there, even if you can't see it, as it were. So yeah. You just have to allow that to become part of the whole discursive package that's going to be going on in that transferential process. And once you've got past that of whatever it is that that face does for you, discursively you know then you can move on to the axis of the sort of symbolic identification Mm. but yeah i mean i think that it's maybe some lacanians do do that but they still do the you know moving from the sitting down to lying down some but you know interesting there's all so many different um (laughs) (laughs) ways of doing it isn't there one last thing on this point was i know that somewhere they make this offhand comment about one of the characteristic Deleuze and Guattari make this offhand comment about one of the characteristics of psychosis is this inability to recognize faces even one's own face there is a a very there's like a strip alongside the the brain I I would have to look again but there is a a specialized part of the brain for recognizing faces which is an interesting biological specialization and adaptation of the brain I was thinking kind of with their call to dismantle the face if part of that is still this schizophrenizing aspect of the work. Yeah, absolutely. And it's true because there is that thing that can happen that you lose the ability to, like, a face just doesn't register as a face at all. But 
I mean, the idea that that particular configuration of objects means something, you can impose a meaning on it. And of course, like, it's a sort of little microcosm of, of like a whole historical leading up to, isn't it? Everybody's okay. face contains within it everybody that came before them and every mm-hmm. historical moment, period, ancestor, you know, comes into being in everybody's individual features. So I suppose the only way that you can ever escape the Oedipal antecedents is to to completely dismantle that because that's, I suppose, the sort of treasure trove of all of those objects, isn't it? The signifying battery of signifiers that the face entails is, is very oppressive. I was yeah. thinking no. about this yeah. idea of like the uh, of looking at oneself in the mirror on psychedelics. I don't recommend looking it. At, looking at your face <laughs> on acid in the mirror, you know. Don't recommend it. <laughs> I've never done acid, but also that what is it DMT? No. Yeah, yeah. The, in, any of DMT. those psychedelics will sort of DMT. Yep. What's of the make one your that face a horror almost to look at? Yeah, and th- what's that one that kind of like makes you experience? sort of spatial and temporal things in a completely different like you see whole like new dimensions of I've heard people talking about their experiences with it. I mean DMT does that DMT. ketamine does some yeah. of that. But yeah, your brain is supposed to release a, a dose of DMT like upon death or something like this. I mean really? supposedly. So I think that there's there is some things of that and that's you know um with ayahuasca, the South American brew, they take DMT yeah. from the bark of one tree and they take mm. they take an maoi from a vine and they mix those together and so you instead of having like a five minute dmt trip it's extended over eight hours and that's part of their yeah. own they have rituals involved with that and all that but uh mm. but yeah i mean this is a uh, looking at yourself in the mirror on psychedelics is disorienting and can be frightening and can be one of those frightening parts of whatever you want to call it, ego death, or, you know, um, you're scrambling the signifiers to a certain Mm. extent. But, you know, I guess that that's exactly the point is, is that the the face is meant to right anchor um, ourselves in the the signifying form. It's the white, but the edible part you brought up, the white wall, they they look at um, what Kurt Lewin and some other phenomenologists, they and child psychologists, the white wall is supposed to be the breast coming up to the baby's mouth, right? And the and so even within one of the elements of the white wall black hole system, you've already got Oedipus like baked in. Exactly. You can't you can't escape the sort of initial impact of the signifier on the body. And um and of course one of the first signifying objects is the breast, which you know inaugurates the the oral drive, which is also the drive to speak you know that's right so how you know of course it's before we've even began speaking the white wall is sort of imposed upon our our psyche yeah Mm -hmm. well we've had you for two hours do you think we've covered a nice swath of the stuff in your essay of course definitely i mean unless there's anything else that comes to mind but uh, you know i think we've we've um exhausted quite a lot of ground and we had some nice excursi, excursuses. We had some nice excursions around. But I guess we will, I definitely want to give you a moment to, as an outro, sort of maybe talk about the forthcoming work. So tell us a little bit, and I know we had this last time, but now it's been a year and a half. So maybe you can tell us more about Patty Politics, maybe some of the elements, anything you want us to know about the, uh, the forthcoming work. And uh, tell us about Patty Politics. Patapolitics, obviously, as I 
I think talked about last time we spoke was is a sort of concept that emerged through my last book and it was a, a thing that I realized had a lot of potential to be developed into more different directions and the last book was about artificial intelligence but for anyone who's read the book also they'll see that it's not it's not just about artificial intelligence it's a way of thinking about lots of sort of questions that I'm interested in around psychoanalysis and philosophy and it's a sort of it was a sort of testing ground for lots of ideas and film uh, as well and sort of cultural theory as well so apartheid politics kind of takes some of these theoretical threads psychoanalytic ones but also biopolitical ideas and ideas to do with the body and sex and suffering and body modification and capitalism and all the kind of themes that were coming up in a lot of the chapters in the book on AI and to because I wanted to sort of explore some other some other ideas and also not be pinned down into always talking about artificial intelligence because it's a quite it can be quite restrictive and it puts you in certain conversations should I say that aren't always like don't always turn out so interesting because you get caught in like in some normative things about AI and I think that could be a red herring because actually the interesting things about AI are often not even to do with AI, they're to do with philosophy and psychoanalysis and stuff like that, right? Partai Politics is going to be a book of lots of different essays, but interconnected in the same way that I suppose that the AI book is as well, because they're kind of self-contained in a sense, even though it's still a thesis. And this just chapter that we've just been talking about is a sort of very preliminary part of that book, but the book also deals with lots of different Thinkers, not just Lacan, but Virilio, obviously Deleuze and Guattari, Lyotard, Baudrillard, Adorno. So it's a kind of French theory and German critical theory and film and all like nice juicy things. So yeah, I mean, basically I'm putting that together now and it's just stitching lots of things that I've been writing and working on together into different new things. And this conversation has been really helpful actually, because I obviously, listening to you guys, with your DNG knowledge is very, <laughs> very useful to me. So thank you. I mean, I, I find it fascinating to write about suffering in its relation to governmentality, legal matters, and 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 that. So the the politics of suffering would that be kind of the way to parse petty politics, or do you have a a way that you would would tell this to a friend who maybe isn't a uh, you know? Um... I suppose it's suffering, yeah. But I I suppose what I am interested in is thinking about sex mm-hmm. which obviously was actually the really the main theme of the psychoanalysis of ai as well sexuation if you mm-hmm. want to be more pretentious about it but <laughs> <laughs> how how we still are not very good at talking about what sex means theoretically or conceptually and a lot of you know there's endless books about how to talk about sex or what sex means in contemporary culture there's endless books about it but i i think that there's on the one hand quite normative takes and I won't mention any names but about like how how we should think about sexuality today but on the other side there is a lot of kind of very obscure sort of abstractions about sex in Lacanian terms that maybe don't really give much tangible flavor to what it means in practical terms I suppose it's also is the book is quite a bit like um, mythologies as well it's like mm-hmm. taking taking lots of things that are sort of cultural artifacts that we that are obvious to us like Marilyn Monroe for example mm-hmm. and trying to complexify and make it more strange and complex which is 
what I get from Baudrillard, which is the idea of philosophy should always make something more complicated rather than <laughs> try and explain it. And I never try and explain things. I try and make things more strange. And I try and make things another question as opposed to, and here's the answer to this question. That's not really what I do. So hopefully it will be like opening up lots of questions about things that people think they may already understand. And maybe we can all try and make them seem more strange to us together. That gives it an artistic and poetic side, because I think that there's there's a part of poetry that's that tries to derange our relations to natural things. The other thing is um, in the opening crazy chapter of Anti-Oedipus, they talk about Michaud's schizophrenic table when they talk about it as a de-simplified machine. So this notion of de-simplifying maybe is like a is another way of saying complexifying without it sounding like it has to be pretentious, right? It's exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. I like that. Desimplifying. That's yeah. Yeah. So yeah, definitely take that and run with it. If it's, if you can fit that in. And I do think that that lacking it to a book like mythologies, you're in good company, right? If, if you're doing something like that, that's, I think that that's going to be eminently fascinating for, for a wide audience. So, so obviously open invitation to come back in 2023 when the <laughs> when the book is out and that way we can have a wider variety of things to talk about but you know it was interesting i mean talking about Marilyn Monroe we got to be talking about a lot of fascinating things exactly. uh, so so i think that if anything if that can be a part of her her legacy in in a weird way then that's something to to be happy about and celebrate and we're just obviously it was a blast i can't believe it's already been two plus hours, but I enjoy myself. Coop, I, I won't speak for him, but I think he looked, <laughs> no, I he, he's, he's been, it looks like he's been having fun. Great. Me too. It was really, really fun talking to you. I mean, I'm just very happy that you went to spend so much of your birthday with me and I, I think you should go and have a drink. Now. <laughs> well, it's, it's 1 PM. So I'm going to wait. I'm going to have, oh, okay. a, I'm, I'm gonna have wait a bit. <laughs> I'm going to have some more coffee and it's noon where Coop is. I'm gonna have some coffee and, and some uh, and some lunch, but definitely there will be libations uh, later <laughs> tonight. We're gonna let you go, Isabel. Thank you for spending time with us, and we're My gonna pleasure. stay on and just uh, we're gonna talk about future events. Recapitulate Perfect. ourselves, yeah. All right, guys. Well, have a really lovely birthday, and I'm gonna go and drink a toast to you now. Uh, excellent. Cheers Thank to you. that. Cheers. All right. Take care. Bye. 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 Once again, this is, has been the Machinic Unconscious Birthday Hour. <laughs> Signing off. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, pure violence without object This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.